Welcome to Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. And your co-host, John Carson. And today we are joined by special guest, Mike Gavigan. Hello, everyone. So Mike and I and John, we all go way, way back. Uh, but uh, Mike is has been a member of not one, but two KISS tribute bands. That I have. So would you like to tell the people a little bit about your, your background in history playing Ace Frehley in those bands? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, back in 1993, uh, me and a friend that I met at a record convention in Pittsburgh, uh, Rich Kosak, uh, we essentially started what, what became Mr. Speed, uh, Kiss Tribute, out of Pittsburgh. Um, we had a you know, mutual um, you know, passion for Kiss, and we wanted to come up with a band that would you know, not only play the classics, but also play some of the obscure tracks, uh, which coincidentally, which, since we're talking about the album uh, Rock and Roll Over, uh, the band name you know, came from this album. We decided we wanted a, a name that wasn't something that would be readily identifiable, like you, know, like, you, know, you already had your cold gins and your hotter than hells. So we decided you know, we wanted to play the classics and the obscure tracks, so therefore we chose the name Mr. Speed. It was a mutual agreement from, from the get-go. Um, and then from there, after our debut gig at the Decade um, on June 24, 1994, um, we continued to play you know, various shows throughout the East Coast, various KISS conventions, KISS expos. And, uh, uh, and in two, the year 2000, I moved to California. Um, however, you know, Rich uh, carried on with the band, and he's still carrying on with the band to this, at, you know, to this date, and he's doing a phenomenal job at it. And uh, I'm proud of him. I'm proud of the work that he's done. I'm proud of the work that he and I did together. Um, but at the same time, that transitioned into me uh, playing original music, which was really something that I've always wanted to do, uh, which you know, helped me uh, move here. And with your help, Dave, uh, we, we formed Dame Fortune. And, uh, you know, found out a bunch of you know, releases, and, and I'm proud of the material that we did. And, um, and, and also, again, I have to say congratulations on the new single and the new video. It's great. Oh, thank you, man. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's a brief history on my experience. You know, I, there's, there's t there are tons of stories with the Kiss Tribute thing, and, you know, we've had... But I think the pinnacle when it comes to um, the, the Kiss Tribute thing, and I'll make it brief, I think it would really wound up being our third show. We played a show at the Decade in June. We played there again in October uh, for a Halloween show. And our next gig, uh, we got offered to play a Kiss Expo in Chicago, and the special guest at the Kiss Expo that day was Ace Frehley. Um, so we took pictures of Ace. He was really cool, and he was really tired because he had just played a show the night before, but he stuck around the rest of the day and backstage and listened to the set. And I heard from one of his handlers uh, that came up to us after the show, and he said, "Hey, you know, I was listening to those guys, and you know they're great. And um, you know he, you know he's listening to all the solos. And he said, you know, he he got that one. Yeah, he got that one, yeah, but he got that one. Yeah, so, well, that's but, you know, that's hey. a high compliment indeed coming yeah, from that's the awesome. Space Ace. Yeah, that's great. Right. So yeah. yeah, thank you, Ace, and you know. Um, so yeah, it, yeah. When, but when it comes to the Kiss stuff. Uh, and knowing the music, you know, like the back of my hand, I mean, you know, you really have to pay your dues and, and do your, your homework with those kind of things. Otherwise, people will see right through you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And for those out there that want to look up what Mr. Speed's doing now, um, they just recreated the costumes and the set from the Dynasty Tour. And they're going to be they're going to be touring off of that. And it looks pretty, pretty damn spectacular, I have to say. Absolutely. Congratulations, Rich. Carry on, brother. Absolutely. So um, uh, you're going to play us uh, a new song that you've been working on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this song? Yes, um, I think I'd send you the link to uh, a band that I'm in. Uh, I mean, about as usual, I'm pretty much the hardest working musician in Los Angeles. I'm in about four or five bands at the same time at any time. 
Um, and currently, uh, one of the groups I'm in is known as Frankie and the Honeybees. Frankie Semeca and uh, Rob Ezzi, who were uh, the bass player and the drummer that were in the, the Blessings, which is another group I'm currently in, um, in the mid-2000s. Um, Frankie has always had a bunch of material uh, since the, the 90s that he wanted to record and release. So after uh, he departed the Blessings, he reached out to me, you know, thankfully, and uh, I agreed, and I said, listen, just you know, teach me the songs, I'll learn them, I'll record them. And literally, I learned the songs, and two weeks later, we were in the studio, and we recorded 10 tracks. Um, I got a co-write on one of the songs, you know, changed one of the, the bridges or something, or a solo, and, you know, I, he gave me credit for it, so thanks, Frank. Um, we recorded the songs, you know, breakneck pace. Um, I was basically going to sleep listening to like Jeff, but I need to come up with a solo ideas, which is a lot of pressure when you're a lead guitar player, right? You need, you know, you want, if you're going to do a solo, you want to do a good one. Um, so, you know, I, we, we learned the songs, recorded them and, uh, we, we recorded about two or three years ago, but it just was released, uh, by Frankie uh, this last weekend on October 2nd. Um, it's available. If you look up Frankie and the Honeybees, there's a website, there's a Facebook page and at the lead off track, which I think we're going to play today is known as get wild which is the title track from the record and uh i'm really proud of it it's you know it, when this guitar comes in it, it basically it's like a hammer you know to your head it's great and uh I'm, I'm proud of it and it's probably you know i've done i've you know i'm lucky to have recorded with so many different people and, and been in the studio so many times i am you know exceptionally proud of some of the guitar work on this record it was really uh, a lot of pressure but it was also a lot of fun and very rewarding at the same time Yeah. 
awesome. And this is the thing that I've been doing most recently. Mike alluded to it. Uh, Dame Fortune's Am I a Warrior?
And John, if you want to introduce your song. Uh, yeah, this is um, Almost Nightfall. Uh, it's got an equally fun story like Michael was recorded 19 years ago, finally released uh, last month. Um, it's actually getting radio airplay on some real live radio stations, and it is called, um, or I told you, it's called Almost Nightfall. Yeah, it's got a real cool Bob Dylan kind of thing going going with it too i think yeah lots of the it's uh, lyrically very strong robert wagner is the singer he's a uh for lack of a better word a pillar of the pittsburgh music scene or at least the pittsburgh uh punk rock scene um and he has always been a great writer um and if the, the whole album undesirables and anarchists by the band the little wretches is wall-to-wall great lyrics and great imagery and um and if i don't or if i do say so myself some excellent bass playing on dreams is swollen now with loves unseen the fishermen's dancing and drunken little lurches the street walkers spread-legged posed in their perches the strongest of bows is drawn back in its arc the longest of arrows hits right on the mark i'm counting my quarters to see if i stack up i ain't going home and i'm not gonna back up it was almost nightfall It was almost dark Streetlights from here to the skyline Appeared like a grid of electric sparks Skyward I looked and I wished on a star It was only an aeroplane I guess that's a wish that will never come true Hate to squander my wishes that way It was almost To one or the other of them falls asleep So for most of the night I'll be walking Don't I wish I could step out of time The chill of the evening is sudden And I am not dressed to be out here all night It was almost nightfall From below rose the dust From above fell the twilight Almost enough. It was almost enough. It was almost enough. 
circles I can't even go to my home Looking above me the heavens are pierced The starlight escapes through the dome So the fertile mind that dreams to a fault Takes the words of the wise with a half grain of salt But lacking a visible target implodes And wanders all night in a rat's maze of roads It was almost nightfall It was almost dark Streetlights from here to the skyline appeared like a grid of electric sparks. Skyward I looked and I wished on a star. It was only an aeroplane. I guess that's a wish that will never come true. Hate to squander my wishes that way. It was almost nightfall. From below rose the dust. Since our last episode, we've actually had a, a big increase in listeners. So uh, welcome aboard. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, it's funny because now on the Facebook page, there's all kinds of KISS fans debating their opinions and, you know, agreeing with our opinions or contradicting our opinions. And that's that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I don't you know, I don't mind if if anybody, you know, completely contradicts anything, any thoughts or feelings I might have about about this stuff because at the end of the day we all love kiss and you know there wouldn't be much point of doing this if we didn't and and you know everything everything expressed is just one person's opinion there's no there's no right there's no wrong uh but of course at the end of the day you also have these guys that just feel the need to stick in that knife and add a little kiss sucks and you know i was (laughs) i know they did why are you listening i was i was thinking about this right i mean i I don't really understand it. I mean, there are a lot of bands that I listen to that, for whatever reason, aren't my cup of tea. They don't speak to me. They don't resonate with me. I don't necessarily like what they're doing. It never occurs to me to go online and find a collection of their fans in a group or a page or a podcast and you know, make it a point to chastise the people that do like the band and tell them that they're wrong or they're stupid for liking something that I don't like. Isn't I mean, I think it's just, it, it seems to really just be Kiss that this happens to. I, I They're just people that have a lot of extra time in their lives, I guess, you know? I don't, yeah, I don't, that's, I don't a, that's the only answer that I can come up with because there's lots of bands that I, I hate, but sometimes I'll give them, like, grudging respect because their fans are so behind them or whatever. And I'll be like, okay, whatever, you know? That's that's awesome. 
So I, I don't get it at all. But then again, arguing music, I guess, is better than arguing politics or religion. So oh yeah, well but, you know we do that too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean you know it, it's strange to me because I think at a certain point when you're 14 years old, your your musical identity, your identity as a human being is wrapped up in your music tastes, and I get that. Right. Uh -huh. Right. You know, like yeah. when I was you know 14, I I resented bands that you know all the hot girls liked that were you know bands that i all the, didn't all like. the pretty boy bands and now I, I just this last year i actually heard some duran duran and thought to myself that's really not a bad song at yeah, all it's kind of catchy and i felt really <laughs> bad about all the people that i told duran duran sucked i wanted to call every single one of them and apologize <laughs> well you know there's there's two things about that right one one uh i think the older that that you get you you start to realize at the end of the day the more broad my taste the more music i like the more music i get to enjoy so it's actually to my benefit to find mm -hmm. something that i like in a wider variety of genres or bands and then i get to experience more pleasure by listening to more stuff right yeah exactly you know and to that point dave and john i mean you know you can't tell me that there isn't something you could like by listening to some, to some Kiss records. You know, there there's something to be to be gleaned from that. I mean, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of passion. Uh, I, I just don't. You can't tell me that there's not one thing that you can't take from a Kiss record. If you're not a fan, you're one of these people that are you know the, the you know, quote unquote haters, you know, or dislikers. I, I just don't. I don't understand how you cannot take something away from Kiss. You know, and and, and embrace that as a, as a positive. Right. Well, I think there's just there are these people that have made this decision. You know, and, and they just can't stand the fact that other people like this thing that they see no value in. I mean, it personally makes them so mad that they feel like they have to, you know, put these people in their place and, and tell them how it really is. And and I again, I the other aspect of it is, you know, you see pictures of Paul Stanley and Rick Springfield hanging out at this point. If you're still playing rock and roll. If you're a survivor, you're still standing when it's not the most popular music in the world anymore. I don't care what type of songs you're writing or what you're doing, more power to you. Yeah. Yeah, and also longevity and, you know, um, repertoire and catalog. I mean, let's look at, you, know, you could name any bunch of, you know, you know, these sort of like, you know, classic, you know, cult bands that have maybe put, maybe put like two or three records in the early 70s. And, you know, I'm not going to name names. Uh, you can do the research, but these are bands that people follow, and, and they wear the, on their sleeves. Like, you know, this is what rock and roll is all about. Well, that's great. That was only for two records. With Kiss, they're still putting out music. You know, they, they've been doing it for for this long. You can't tell me that there isn't one thing that you can find. You know, and, and again, just in terms of the numbers when it comes to releases, right? When, and, when and a band, tours, when a band yeah. has done twenty plus studio albums. There is, yeah. you know, yeah, there is something for everyone. All right. I just wanted yeah. to, to get that out of the way. So today we are going to be going on a deep dive into the album Rock and Roll Over. Um, so this album is kind of the, well, for one thing, it's the fifth studio album. It's the first studio album produced by Eddie Kramer. And they were coming off of the success of Destroyer, which... Almost wasn't a success, but thanks to Beth, became their first platinum album. Uh, Alive One was still doing well in the charts. 
and they went back into the studio. Um, at this point, there were two things that were working for Kiss on the records. Um, the feel that they got playing live together when being recorded by Eddie Kramer and a bittersweet ballad that was sung by Peter Chris. Both of those things seemed to resonate with people and rock and roll over recreates both of those things, right? So instead of going to a traditional studio in New York or the record plant, they rent a small theater and they set up a video system so they get some separation and Peter Chris is playing drums, but they are literally playing together all live, at least for basic tracks, live in a theater. Um, Eddie Kramer, by the way, has quite a pedigree as a producer engineer. This guy has worked with the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a lot of history there even before he begins working on this album. Uh, he is kind of known, I think, as a guitarist's producer, uh, having worked with Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, obviously. And uh, also, they make sure that there is another Peter Chris ballad on this album. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was clever that they... <laughs> They did that. I guess they were so sure that a Peter Chris ballad would be their saving grace on this album. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, the one thing about this album, I think for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? So they did just they did Destroyer, and they really pushed themselves, but it was a painful experience for them. Bob Ezrin was not the easiest guy to work with. Um, they weren't necessarily all that confident with the results that they got. You know, they put out three failed singles. It wasn't until Beth hit that the, the album took off. Um, so I think that they really wanted to get back to basics, cut out all the 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 uh, orchestras and the kids' choirs and the weird sound effects, and just do some raw, in-your-face, meat-and-potatoes rock and roll, uh, and hence you get rock and roll over. And before, before we get into the songs and the analysis, let me just say the title and the album art, I think, reflects that too, right? Because versus Destroyer, if Destroyer was a date you would be picked up in a limo and taken to a five-star restaurant and taken to see the first row at a Broadway play, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. The songs on Rock and Roll Over are you go into a dive bar and you meet some girl and have a dirty one-night stand, right? I mean, this is... The, and, and I think you can see that in the, in the colors on the cover, right? It's all basic, primary, flat colors, um, there's no, there's no, there's no nuance and that's on purpose, right? Mm. Rock and roll over. Now we've talked about this before. What does that mean? I think as much as rock and roll or rock is a euphemism for sex. Okay. It's saying mm. we're going to rock and roll over literally rock, have sex and roll over. No foreplay, no beating around the bush. This is not dinner and a movie time. All of these songs get to the point right? Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, outro, chorus, repeat, ad infinitum. So, so every one of these songs basically follows that structure, has a fade out. Every one of these fades out. I know, John, you said that they were doing cock rock mm. on Destroyer. I kind of think they were getting cockier, but this is the first time we really see Kiss writing all their songs. Nine out of ten of these songs are written from a male perspective, speaking to a, you know, anonymous you who is female and mm -hmm. these are the fuck me suck me songs that paul stanley complained he was tired of writing when they did the elder hmm. 
Yeah, this is definitely them as the kings that they always thought they were. This is the full transformation into where they're, uh, they assume that they're the most important person on the block. And they want, they want your attention, yeah. But they also play a lot heavily into their mythology as well. Like, I would argue that the cover is very, like, you know, with the artwork shows eyes shooting out of aces. Or, sorry, lasers shooting out of aces' um, mm. eyes and the wings behind Paul and, you know, that kind of stuff. I think they're really sort of playing with their mythology. And I think, isn't this also the time that their merchandising picks up? Because this album comes with a sticker or something. God dang what I wouldn't do for that sticker right now. Um, I think that, Mike you know has what it. I mean? <laughs> Of course, Mike has it. Yeah, you do. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, so this is, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is their most cockiest of rockiest, at least up until this point. Yeah, there, there is very little vulnerability sh uh, shown in, in much of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, there was, not at all. There was a little, and we'll talk about that when it comes to the lyrics. But um, all right, so side one, uh, cut one. I want you, Mike. Um, I just have a, a few uh, quick questions. What was the first single from this record? Was it "I Want You" or was it uh, "Calling Doctor Love"? Uh, it was okay. "Hard Luck Woman." Hard actually. Luck Woman was the first single. Okay, November. and yeah, then the November, and then February was "Calling Doctor Love." Yeah, which, by the way, no Paul single from this album. Oh, okay. Which is interesting. I think that there's a real, we'll get into this hmm. in a bit, but there's a real strange dichotomy between what they were playing live on this album, what they released as singles, and what they recorded as publicity videos. Yes. Right, this is the Don Kirshner rock concert infamous show mm -hmm. that is absolutely wonderful to watch on YouTube. Because it opens with I Want You or whatever, and it's, yeah, you got... Gene doing his super demon. Sorry, Mike, continue on. Okay, uh, we're talking about I Want You. I, again, it's almost like the Stairway to Heaven thing where you have like the acoustic intro and you go from, you know, subtle to, you know, ultra blast. And when they come in and when those guitars, electric guitars come in, those are some of the most like pleasantly disturbing, rudest guitar sounds that you can ever hear on a record. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't even know how to get that sound. If, if, you, if you cranked up your Marshall right now, you could not get that sound. How do they get that? Did Eddie Kramer help? I, I would expect so. But it, it's such a great opening track. I mean, it, you got the acoustic guitar and, and the, the, the loud, aggressive guitars when, when they kick in. Um, I just like the, the immediacy of how... It's interesting because this record was recorded in the theater, right? Which you would think it would sound like the 80s albums, where it was a lot of reverb and you know echo and stuff. But it almost sounds like it was recorded in like a concrete warehouse or like a concrete garage. Where yes, it's just, yes. You know what I mean? It's oh, like, yeah. okay, really? Was this recorded in the theater? Okay, you guys say so, then... Uh, then so be it. But again, great lyrics from Paul, great vocal uh, delivery. Um, and I love the fact, too, that there's a trade off with, um, you know, the solos where you get Paul takes the first one and Ace takes the second half. Um, and then interestingly, too, like they do the reintro after the solo. There's, you know, that classic, you know, phase. But I always wondered why, like, why does the phasing end after like bar three of the second bar? Like, why didn't you go to the full, you know, full eight bars? Like, there's mm. that last little one bar of drums that, there's no phasing. Like, well, what happened there, guys? You know, who knows? But anyhow, it, it's it's a stunning track, you know, standalone um, and a great opening track for the album. Um, and, and no wonder they played as much as they did um, in those days. John? Yeah, that's uh, Mike basically said everything I wanted to say. It's my, it's one of my favorite um, 
songs on the album. It's also the way the transition from the acoustic to the uh, electric in the beginning. I was I remember listening to it. And again, this would probably be the first time I'd listened to it in years. And it winds up at first. I'm like, oh, this is going to be so awkward. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just not going to work. The the jump from the acoustic to the electric. But it it does. It actually holds together and um fades really well i would assume this is an edit there's no way that he's jumping from uh um you know acoustic to whatever but acoustic to electric um and actually weirdly enough mike although i am not a guitar player i noticed the same thing about the solo it is a nice interplay between paul and uh ace as well and also too when you think about the acoustic thing what a bold way to start off the record because when you think of destroyer and how you know thematic that whole thing was yeah yeah like, good point yeah. and you're you're gonna start a kiss record with an acoustic guitar but the vocal comes right in immediately there's like there's you uh, know, two notes and there you know interesting thing about that intro too a couple notes uh you know the tempo is actually slightly different than the main body of the song right it's a little oh, yeah. it's a little bit off and when they mm-hmm. played it live they played it a lot differently Yes, yes, I agree. I the, um, Again, that's why I thought it was going to be weird and awkward when I was listening to it for the first time in years. I thought the same thing. It was going to be uh, just strange. You know, like I, I, I was thinking of the way sometimes when Sabbath will switch tempos or switch parts, there's mm-hmm. a moment where you're like, what were you thinking there? But then eventually, you know what I mean? Then you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. But it, it didn't. It actually worked quite well, um, surprisingly. Right. So... So uh, my thoughts about the song, I, looking at the pedigree of the song, um, you know, you can hear the influence of uh, Run For Your Life by the Beatles, right? You better mm-hmm. run, you better hide, you know, that, that whole mm-hmm. thing. I mean, the lyrics taken by themselves, you can fight, but tonight there's nothing you can do. You know, by 21st century standards, you know, sounds a little rapey. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think right? the, the intent is that, that, you know, Paul as the lover's sexuality is so strong and so all powerful that whatever inhibitions this woman might have had will be swiftly overcome simply by the power of his, his lust, right? That is the idea. Um, and I think too, you know, you can hear the song, a song like this is influence on, the Twisted Sister song by the same name as the Beatles song, Run For Your Life, you know. Um, mm-hmm. they, they both start, you know, I wake up in the morning and I think about the past, you know, like very similar, um, very similar place for the lyrics, very similar theme. Although, you know, by the time it gets to Twisted Sister, the love aspect has sort of been replaced by pure revenge. So um, okay. it's, it's interesting, Mike, you talk about the immediacy of the album. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, this is the most immediate of Kiss albums, right? Like all of these songs, uh, the, there's no fat, you know. Um, Paul is in a really interesting place with his writing where he hasn't resorted to cliches, but there's like a perfect balance of interesting melody and accompaniment and lyrical ideas. Um it's only recently that Paul Stanley has started to kind of criticize some of the things on this album, like specifically in this song, um, you know, there's the, uh, in the chorus, uh, there's the, what do you call it? The, the very rapid, quick, um, A, E, um, G or D, E kind of descending part. You know what I'm talking about? 
mm-hmm. where he's, I know. he's just, yeah. yeah, it's like, it's like 30 second notes or something. Um, and I've read in interviews where he's talked about, you know, I wish I was a better guitar player when we recorded this album because I actually wanted that part to be a riff and not just uh, hammer on, hammer off on a couple strings. But to me, it's perfect because it, 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 makes the the whole chorus live and exciting and interactive between the guitar part and the vocal yeah because those pull-offs are really dramatic but it's also supported by you know and this is ace is you know it's a compliment to ace's rhythm guitar playing is it's supported by ace's g d i mean he couldn't be any more clear he's got a, a clear backing to be able to do those hammer-ons and pull-offs and it's great it creates a, a, a dramatic tension absolutely now one thing you said you said immediate if there's one criticism of this album I have, it's that on the lesser cuts, there is a fine line between immediate and disposable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of that, is anybody any last words about I Want You? No. Okay. No, other than the fact that, again, I've, I've done some research too, and I've tried to see wh- how long they played these songs and when they debuted these songs on certain tours, and this one was done on the first night of the Rock and Roll Over tour, and that's all i got to say about that. This was actually the second most played song from this album throughout their career. They did it like 524 times. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good tune. It's a good tune. So then we go, we, we go to Take Me. Uh, like you said, disposable. It really, I know that it doesn't. It come from one of those magnographic uh, demos or whatever. Like it's before Destroyer, um, hmm. but it it definitely doesn't speak to me. Like I'll be perfectly honest, I can't even. Uh, yeah, to me, it's just a disposable song. It's not bad, but it's not. You know what I mean? And it's an easy bridge between "I Want You" and "Calling Doctor Love." But I really like "I Want You" and "Calling Doctor Love." So I almost don't like to wait through take me mike um i'll say this about take me um it's so in the the same vein as like and i want you where it's you know sort of the cock rock thing and you know paul's doing what he does and you know but you know is it is it equally as strong a track no um and at the same time too i think they they might have played this just i think they only played this a handful of times on the rock roll over tour and then i remember seeing them play this I went to uh, see them on the reunion tour in Cleveland, um, and they played this song live. And it was interesting because I guess they were just trying to see what they could do, what they couldn't do on the reunion tour uh, with Ace and Peter. And it, it was almost as if half the audience didn't know what song it was. They, they, it, whether or not they were playing a Kiss song, you know, it, people were just looking around like, what, what, what the hell's going on here? You know, whereas the diehards wanted to hear it, but also coming from um, a Kiss tribute background, there are certain, you know, I've, I've, pretty much for the most part probably tried to play most if not all these songs in a live in, in like a rehearsal situation with the band and this song is not easy to, to put across live yeah i mean you know the the, the changes in, in between like the, you know, the the bridge i'm sorry the pre-chorus and the chorus that's awkward um there's a lot of changing drum beats there's like you know the, the disco beat in certain parts and you have like uh-huh. the Chuck Berry. it's it's i mean i'm again hats off to them for getting it on, on record and, and recording it that way it's it's strong but it's interesting too because i guess um, it was a potential track for Alive 2, uh, but they decided for a reason to pull it, and I guess they later released that on You Won the Best, You Got the Best in 96, 97. So, you know, yeah. they felt strongly strong enough about it at that point to say, hey, we're going to put this out there, and, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, again, it's not it's not the strongest track on the record, and, and, you know, again, with 10 tracks on the whole thing, 
you know, if I wrote a song as good as you know, as Take Me, <laughs> I'd be proud of it in, in a lot of ways too. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they played it 114 times, you know, which is not nothing. Um, and like you said, there's like a misprint of Alive too that actually features it as being a track on there. So at, at one time, it must have been considered for Alive too. Um, yeah. But. You know, Gene, I think, is not especially fond of the song. He's complained about having to sing the high falsetto, you know, take me kind of thing there uh. that he thought was not masculine or whatever. Um, also, too, like whenever Kiss does these things where they have vocal melodies but no words, the ah, 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 yeah, you know, that whole thing. Um mm-hmm. That doesn't usually work that well. The only time I can think of in a Kiss song where they've done that and I go, wow, that's perfect, is I Was Made For Loving You. Yeah. Uh, Okay, good point, good point. You know, every other time they've done it in, like, You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best, or Spit, or, um, you know, I'm sure there's other examples. It's always felt a little just awkward to me like this, you know, like we're going to throw in kind of a scat singing thing in the middle of a kiss song. Well, much like, um, the intro to, uh, hide your heart. I mean, you know, if yeah. you want to sing along to a song, you want to sing along to a lyric, something you're going to, you know, sink your teeth into, or, you know, your, your heart is going to believe in. Right. I'm not going to sing along to something. just a bunch of scat melodies, you know? Yeah. No, hide your heart's the perfect example. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, okay. So not a ton to say about that now. Calling Dr. Love, the second single, a song that they have played 1,233 times in concert. Wow. This is my other favorite song from this album. That riff is tighter than Mosquito's butthole. I love that uh, riff <laughs> more than anything in the entire rock and roll. Like, that is that is one of those things where I get chills whenever I hear that riff, like, come on the radio or, you know what I mean, hit it off sort on a... Um, you know, on my uh, iPhone or whatever. You know what I mean? I just love that riff. It's got, um, it's got kind I, of a menacing swagger to it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the um, the only, yeah, I, there's really absolutely nothing wrong with this song. The whole, the the line, um, I mean, it's, it's lyrically great. There are no bills. There are no fees. You know what I mean? I mean, it's actually pretty clever. Um, I mean, obviously it's cock rock. There's nothing you can really do about that. But um the the only way to I forget what he says is like with a kiss uh, at some point in the song. And I'm like, that's kind of awkward, but it's OK. It works. You know, the rest of the song is so great that it doesn't bother me. Yeah, there's a certain so, there's a certain hokum aspect to the song where yeah, we're starting uh-huh. to get in the in the territory of the big bopper a little bit. But yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Mike. <laughs> uh, again, it's it. it you know, to you know bolster John's point about the guitars when it comes in there, it's man, it's. That's some strong guitar playing there. But I wonder, too, because live, it was Ace that would start the song, which is, you know, kind of awkward. You know, I think Paul would normally be playing, you know, a rhythm guitar. Um, but it's almost as if, you know, okay, if this is written by Gene, is that him playing rhythm guitar on the track? Because it just sounds, again, you compare the studio version to the live version, there are differences in terms of the presentation. The interplay, you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, but, again, it, it, I mean, it's... I love the fact too that I think you know I think they've been quoted as saying that you know they were influenced by the Three Stooges, right? You know, calling Doctor Love. That's they, yes, there, yeah, there that's were two different right? the... two different things. Um, that was a yeah, calling Doctor Love was a hospital page that Gene Simmons overheard in a in a Three Stooges movie, and then supposedly he also read an article uh, about a doctor who was sleeping with his patients, and that was how he was supposed <laughs> quote unquote curing them. Um, 
But, you know, you know, I don't know if you guys have been following the gossip lately, but apparently Ace has a nurse fetish and and Paul, too, depending uh, if you look uh, at that photo shoot in one of the tour books. So, you know, uh, yeah. the whole doctor patient thing is uh, power dynamic is certainly rife for rock and roll musical potential. Yes. Yes, right. indeed. Uh, but again, well-recorded song, and I think, too, this is uh, this goes back to the point about singles and when these songs were released, because they didn't start this song um, on any tours until July of 77. Yeah, really. So, again, strong song, but, like, why it wasn't played earlier in, on any of these tours? Who knows? Well, okay, so one of the issues is when you – most albums, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is the third or fourth song on any side one is considered – by whoever tracks the album at the end when it's finally done is going to be the single. The third or fourth song is apparently when the audience starts listening to whatever work of art you've been given them, whether that be live or whether that be on an album or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's, and I agree with you, Mike, that is weird that they waited that long to add it to their live show because that if it's tracked third or fourth, it usually means this is what our big hit's going to be. Especially when you consider, too, that I think they also had you and we'll get to this later, but they, there were other songs that were, let's say, you know, less workable live tracks that they started the tour with, like Love and Leave. And we'll get to that later. But, you know, Calling Back to Love, to me, if you're playing that song in a band in a live venue, it's obvious that that's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> but who knows? Uh, but interesting point, too, is I was doing some research on this song as well. Um, and I'm sure you guys are aware of uh, a guitar player from New York. Who was, uh, his name is Binky uh, Phillips. And he was in a band called the, the Planets, who opened to Kiss, or you know, front of Kiss, however you want to phrase it, uh, when Kiss did their show at the Hotel Diplomat, and they got their deal with um, Bill O'Coyne. Okay. Um, and there's a story with where a Binky, because Binky knew, I think, the engineer on the album, I think his name is Corky Stasiak, um, and he heard later from Corky uh, that when they were working on the song and Ace was going to do a solo on Calling Dr. Love, Gene, I think, I believe it was Gene, said to Ace, uh, give me a Binky solo. Which meant uh, basically a bunch of like, you know, uh, overbends and a lot of, you know, like trilly kind of descending uh, ace looks like he would do in, uh, you know, uh, watching you solo. So I think a lot of the, you know, there's like that, that there's that really low band after the heat does a descending lick in the solo and he bends like from a G to like a, a C or something on the low E string. I uh -huh. think if you listen to some of Binky's stuff online, you'll see where maybe that where some of that came from. So whether whether it's true or not, whether Binky's you know, telling the truth or if that was a direct influence. However, Ace was around the guy at the time. Um, he might have picked that up. And obviously, it was a clear reference for them to use. So and it, again, is an interesting solo and a unique solo um, when it comes to Ace's uh, repertoire of licks. For uh, sure. I'm going to go down that binky rabbit hole right now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great. Thanks, Mike. No, sorry, Dave. Sorry, sorry, John. Yeah, that, that's all. In fact, now would be a good time to mention Ace's solos in general. This is the first album he didn't get any writing credits, but, you know, yeah. boy, he has upped his solo game. Yeah, they're totally solid. It's like he's finally come into his own. Yeah. I mean, they are short but sweet, but... And they sound so full and thick. I mean, in so much space. My God, you know, if you can imagine the volume those guys played at in live, how cool and fun that would be to be able to just waylay an audience with you know that kind of volume and power. Man, yeah. good for them, you know. Right. And if you believe Ace, um, you know, like literally each one of these solos, they would spend maybe a couple of hours on in the studio. 
Huh. Yeah, and I think too from you know reading interviews and, and seeing interviews with Eddie Kramer, I think Eddie would you know capture a couple of takes and he would pull something together. That's, just, that's what he did with Jimmy Page, is what he did with, with Hendricks, you know, and he was used to it. So they were in the zone with, with Eddie on this record. Same thing Thank they goodness. used to do with Jack Douglas used to do with Joe Perry to the point where I was just watching a, a video about this. You know, at the time you couldn't punch in and punch out without making a noise on the the tape. So they built a <laughs> special box that had like silent switches on it. So Joe would record six solos or whatever for a track, and then Jack would literally play the switches going back from track to track to track to combine to make the final solo. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what what Eddie did. Oh, there it is, Pinky Phillips. Uh, yeah, Pinky this Phillips. is uh, Pinky live from the CBGB. Um, this is, I think, from the 80s. Um, but you can also look, there's some Planet stuff. They, they never, they had, apparently, not to go on a tangent here, but um, I guess the deal was, um, when Kiss got signed, a lot of bands in New York were thinking, okay, it's going to happen for us. And, and Binky was is basically known as the guy that said, like, you know, why was I left out? Like, everybody else got, you know, a deal and I got left out. Um, but I guess they had some demos that they did for Warner Brothers and it just never went anywhere. Um, they never released any of those demos, but then he's doing a thing now. I think he released it last year where there's about maybe like, there are at least eight or ten tracks online that you can find now. Okay. Um, that he's releasing under the, the, the Planet's name, so... Awesome. I will definitely investigate. You know, the other thing is, Eddie Kramer was not a songwriter in the sense that Bob Ezrin was, but he was a musical guy who understood music theory and stuff, and, you know, he would occasionally, and there, okay, there there we are with him, for the people that can't see us, because it's not a video podcast, but um, that's a picture of me and Mike and Eddie, and uh, so I, I believe it was that time that Eddie talked about how Ace would sometimes play a minor pentatonic over a major chord, and it used to drive Eddie crazy, and he used to say, you can't do that. Well, yeah. I mean, it is rock and roll, and a lot of times the, it was more, the majorness of the chord was more implied than actually played, but that was the kind of influence that Eddie had working with Ace to correct him when he, as an untrained musician, might have uh, put in a minor, minor third over a major chord. Yes, and granted, this is all technical talk, but at the same time, you know, sometimes that tension, you know, adds something too. You know, but you know, obviously, Eddie knew enough about you know blues and, and, and pentatonic, you know, guitar playing that he could uh, interject that kind of feedback. So that's right. That's right. Obviously, yeah, doing the minor third is a blues thing, but I think you know, obviously, there's a, there's a time when it's appropriate and it's intentional, and there's a time when it's you know maybe sounds like you're playing the wrong notes. So. Yeah. Um, moving ra- moving on then to ladies' room. Uh, I think it's clever. It's kind of funny, uh, but doesn't blow me away. But it's I mean it's a good song. You know what I mean? Like I f- when I I find myself humming it to myself. You know for no reason at all. So it's definitely catchy. Um, but nothing. You know it doesn't super stand out. It's you know it's kind of ridiculous. But Kiss is kind of ridiculous. So I dig it. <laughs> Um, for me, with Ladies' Room, it, it, it's become sort of like, for me, like a closet classic Gene tune. I, I would like, to, I would like to hear, I would like to hear Kiss play that now, yeah. in a way, just to see how it comes across. Um, but I, I think it's some research too. I think uh, this is one of the tracks where supposedly Gene Simmons is on rhythm guitar. Okay. Uh, whether or not he's doing the initial riff, I don't know. Um, but again, I think, I think too, from um, you know, from the classic, you know, seventies uh, songbooks, I want to say. That the lyrics were printed as meet m e e t comma m e a t 
me in the ladies' room. I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I don't know if that was just the lyricist being, or the you know the person and putting it, out the book being clever, or if yeah. that was actually Gene's intent. I mean, the, the whole subject matter of the song, right, is this idea that uh, Kiss was inviting women to meet them, to, to groupies <laughs> to have sex with them in the ladies' room after the show, which... Um, you know, I'm sure that there's a kernel of truth to that, but it's it's kayfabe, really. By the time they're on the Rock and Roll Over tour and they're playing six to 14,000 seaters, they're inviting these women to the hotel to backstage. They're not meeting them in a ladies' room because how could they? Just from a practical standpoint, there's no... I mean, there's multiple ladies' rooms in the arena. How would they even... It would be a security nightmare. There's no way that this... You know what I'm trying to say? As right. well as and, filthy. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's like COVID nightmare. Good <laughs> Lord. This, like, who would have sex in a bathroom on purpose? And was, ah! Well, yeah. wow, I'm okay. getting skeeved out. <laughs> yeah. Whether we have, whether it was a closet or a road case, I mean, it's a convenient term of reference for where it went down. So I get it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I get, I get the idea. I mean, it's like living in sin at the Holiday Inn. I mean, it's, you know, it's just a funny little innuendo you know there's nothing yeah. really you know, but similar to um you look at the uh the pre-chorus of take me and the pre-chorus of uh ladies room there's there's that weird disconnect between like how it, it, it gets into the chorus in a way i mm. again, huh, yeah i noticed that too all right yeah go ahead mike yeah i'm Speak. sorry you know i play these songs i tried to play these songs live and you know this is my experience with it. i didn't write them but you know I, I tried to play them um but you know there you have it um there was another point i had about ladies room too oh um there again in the pre-chorus, such a jewel in the roof, all that stuff. Um, there's a band. Uh, speaking of, you know, we're all Pittsburgh guys. Uh, there's a band named uh, Diamond Rio, okay. not Diamond Rio, um, yeah, who uh, included uh, Norman Nardini on bass, Warren King, amazing guitar player on guitar, uh, yeah. Frank Zuri on vocals. Um, but there's a there's a certain Pittsburgh feel to the way those guys, those drummers, would play drums. And that pre-chorus in Ladies Room is so. If you listen to like any of those Diamond Rio records, it, that that drum feel is there. And, and now the, the reason I bring that up is Diamond Rio was the band that was opening to Kiss when they recorded the Kiss Alive record at Cobo Hall, ah. or you know, part of the. You know. So those ah. guys were on multiple shows. I want to say at least three or four shows um, on that tour. Um, I'm again, I'm not saying that there was an influence, you know, or whatever, but you know, you hear things if you're in a dressing room, you hear a band's playing. You know, these things sort of just enter your your your, your you know your psyche no matter what. Um, but there's a definite style to Pittsburgh drummers. And when you listen to the Diamond Rio stuff and you listen to the pre-chorus of the ladies' room, I think there's a connect there. I'll buy that. Well, Mike, that, that is a whole other podcast we could go on because I, I am fascinated by the Pittsburgh sound. I try and define that all the time where I, I, I could almost argue that bands like the Affordable Floors and Norm Nardini and the yeah. Cynics all have a similar sound even yes. though they would be categorized, categorized as other stuff. Man, we that's our next podcast right okay. there, buddy. And, and, and yeah, I again, can totally talk yeah. about that all day long, man. There's definitely a Pittsburgh sound. Okay. That's funny. I, okay. And, and funny, I just got chills with you you saying that, and I'll just, I'll just close it with this, because I've, I've spoken to Norman about this um, multiple times, as a matter of fact. Um, but the, the track that I'm referencing, there's I think it's uh, the, the the record is Rough Cuts from Diamond Rio, and the song is called Electricity. And the electricity, ding, 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 ding. it's it's the ladies' room, you know, pre-chorus. But anyhow, the last fact about Norman and, and uh, Diamond Rio open for Kiss, I asked him about open for those guys, and he said, yeah, man, uh, they had all these Marshall Stacks, you know, recording Kiss Alive, 
And, you know, behind those were like these little Fender Champ amps, and that's what Eddie Kramer had microphones on. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't like <laughs> nice. Marshall amps. But he said also, too, that when they're open to them, um, he said it was really clever that, you know, they had at the time, maybe they weren't sure if there was going to be an audience there. Maybe they were selling out, maybe they weren't selling out, you know. What, but to bolster that, they had a recording that they would play through the PA of an audience letting the audience know that it's okay to applaud. Ah, interesting. They did that live, yeah. huh? And I've, I mean, obviously, yeah. I've heard about them adding the audience uh, noise to the, uh, the live albums, but... Yeah, but this is the other way. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and Norman, again, he, it, that guy, amazing rush. This goes off way on, on a big-time tangent, but if you want to hear some really good Pittsburgh rock and roll uh, records, listen to uh, Dirty Diamonds and uh, Rough Cuts Diamond Rio. They're, they're great records. He is an unappreciated genius. Yeah. No, I hear you, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. All right. That'll, yeah. We got to stop talking about that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I agree with you completely. So, ladies, it's interesting to me. It's one of the few uh, tracks that's on uh, Kiss Alive 1 or 2 that, like, hasn't been played by the band since then. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was something where, you know, I think I did the math. I think they did, like, seven out of ten tracks are on this record live on, on that tour. So maybe they're just feeling strongly about it. I mean, you go back to Destroyer. They opened, basically, Destroyer tour with Detroit City. How do you go... And play a live show and play you know an opening tune that's the first track off the new record. How confident could you be? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So, okay, um, Baby Driver, one of the few Kiss songs that actually kind of has a groove to it. Yeah, I actually didn't mind. I, I like it. It's kind of funny. I mean, you know what I mean? It's it's a goofy, fun song. Um, it's got a pretty decent, if I remember correctly, a pretty decent bass line to it, doesn't it? It has like a walking part or am I confusing that with something else? I don't know. It's all kind of on the upbeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It definitely, um, cause at first I was like, this is ridiculous. And then I was like, this is great, you know, because it's just so sort of goofy and fun. Mike? Uh, okay, um, again, the, the, the guitars come in. It's so just... Those guitar tones. Nobody's ever done those guitar tones on another record that I'm aware of. I mean, that's just rude, loud guitar. I mean, maybe McMars live. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, you know, that's 10 years later. Um, again, it's great to hear Peter's voice. I'm glad they gave him a track on the record. Um, but you can tell, too, is he's like trying to do like R&B, but like in a, in a heavy rock format. Um, which also works, but also too, like his voice on this track, especially when he gets to the end, he's like just blowing his voice out. Like when he's at the very end, you hear like, gun it, woman, gun it. Yeah. He's like blowing it out. So good for him. But I like too how, you know, debatable, you know, we weren't there when they recorded, but you know, was it Ace said us through the, the harmonized, you know, guitar parts, but in a way that almost sounds like a car horn, you know, and somebody driving a car, you know, so much like the, the crosstown tra cross traffic thing that I'm sure, you know, Eddie Kramer was involved in. So maybe he'd say, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you do something like this? You know? Yeah. Or, I mean, it definitely, if you were arranging it, if Bob Ezrin was arranging it, he would definitely make it a horn part. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I, I, True. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he also do is like the car horn thing, too, where, you know, it sounds like, you know, I don't know, when you hear like crosstown traffic, you kind of hear like, you know, midtown Manhattan and stuff going on. Is Ace trying to do like, car, uh, you know, a car horn, just, you know, blowing through? Who knows? Either way. Um, again, great teamwork with the band because I don't think there's a track on the record, at least in that era with, with the band, whereas if they had a song idea, they were on a hundred percent, you know, you know, they, they weren't, nobody was phoning in at that point. So if Peter had a track, so be it. I don't think they played this on, I don't think they ever played this on that tour. 
ever, um, but, you know, ever, yeah. zero times played live. Um, yeah. So, so this song, it's interesting. I think it was originally written by Peter and Stan Pendridge, right? I, I want to say. Yeah, it is. Um, and, but I think Gene had a lot to do with the rearrangements of the song because there are some demos floating around where he's playing live and he's shouting out the chord changes to the other people that are playing it. Um, and it's pretty close to the arrangement that ended up on the record. Um, you know, there's it's interesting, right? I mean, it, this song kind of reminds me of the... Uh, there was sort of in the 70s the mystique of the badass biker slash trucker type thing that was a big part of the culture then. Um, mm -hmm. And this is almost like Gene's take on ZZ Top in terms hmm. of the arrangement, I think. Um, there was actually a song called Baby Driver that predates this uh, by Simon and Garfunkel. Um Oh, that, you know, you wonder if that was an influence in them, at least in terms of them coming up with the name of the song. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. And then there's the movie called Baby Driver, right? I mean, yes, that, based that, on that this? came much later. Yeah, I know. But was that based on any of these songs? I wonder. I don't know. I never saw the movie. I don't know enough about it to really state anything. So I don't know. Yeah. But same here. To be investigated later. So love them and leave them. The interesting thing about this song is th they filmed a promo video for it, um, which makes me think that at one time, at least, they were thinking this was a potential single. And certainly the chorus is, is catchy, um, but they only played it live like seven times, you know, throughout their career. Um, and it doesn't really seem like it's quite strong enough to be a single. No, it's definitely not strong enough to be a single. I don't, I don't like the song at all. I mean, I hate to say that, but it, it really did nothing for me. Um, I think, again, it's one of those, isn't that one that predates with the Magnographic demos before Destroyer or whatever? Um, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't speak to me. It, you know what I mean? It's just kind of boring. It, it doesn't have anything clever about it. Like even Ladies Room has something clever about it. And Calling Dr. Love is clever about it. Love Me Leaving is just kind of uh, generic. Well, I will say, okay, if you want to say that, I, I, there's one thing that, that sticks in my mind that is kind of clever about it, which okay. is the lyric, you lift your dress, you weren't impressed. There's one thing I've got to confess. Okay, that's a, for Gene Simmons, that's a, a significant amount of male fragility to admit that he was unable to sexually please the female partner in the song. Is that, in, okay. is that indeed the lyric, though? Because I hear it as, you know, you, you lift your dress, you want to impress. I mean, is that well, gospel, you know, you know the book, thing, chapter, and verse? The thing about lyric sites is that a lot of times the wrong lyric gets written and simply copied and pasted, even into the official band sites, yeah. you know, yeah. where I've seen, like, clearly lyrics are wrong. I always heard it as you weren't impressed. Um it could be you want to impress or something similar to that. Um, you know, go home and listen with a pair of headphones. Come back. Tell me what you think. I got you. Because in a way, to me, it makes sense that, you know, if the girl's going to want to be with you and she's going to try to entice you and, you know, she wants to impress you and you, you've got to confess that, hey, no matter what you've got going on, 
I love them and I leave them. You know, that's, right. that's, that's to me the perspective you know that I have of that, that lyric. But who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Okay. I mean, yeah. All right. Well, that if could you're definitely right, make this if you're song right, a lot better. If you're right, Mike, then John is also right that there's nothing particularly clever. Um. Okay. <laughs> and then my my last point on this song period is I think they played this one time on the Rock and Roll Over tour. I think they did it on the very the debut night of the tour, and that was it. So obviously they didn't go over. Uh, coming from a Kiss tribute you know, background, I've tried to play this song in rehearsal situations, and it was never, you know, not not anything against Kiss's songwriting um, and their performance of the song, but it's a difficult song to try to present live. So no wonder it didn't last, uh, you know, longer than you know one night on the tour. Yeah. But again, again, a badass killer solo for Ace Man. It is so strong. It's just like it's like a laser beam coming through that track. It's so great. Yeah. And the phasing on the solo, it's yeah, I mean, Ace, Bravo. And. You know, Eddie Kramer, when when Ace's solos come come in too, he does a great job at making room throughout the entire mix. Like the guitars, the the bass, the drums are you know like completely out of the way of of the lead guitar, but it's not like the lead guitar is ever too loud. Yeah, yeah, but it's just so pronounced. I mean, it's just like and his sustain on that. You know, you could tell it's not like a, a fuzzy thing or like a you know distortion thing. It's just like the it's. It, I think it's Ace's fingers, man. It just comes across as like damn man this guy's he's connecting with his instrument like you like those those strings are coming through the amplifier in some way you know again bravo ace for sure okay any last thoughts about love him and leave him no all right so the next song you know i always think of gene and paul sitting down and saying to each other like hey we should write a song about this and they each go off and they write their their answer to that idea and uh you know, Gene's song, Love Him and Leave Him, to me, Paul Stanley's answer to that song is Mr. Speed, right? Because very similar lyrical subject matter, but it's Paul's take on it. Right, exactly, yes. And it's a little more clever than Love Him or Leave Him, I would argue. But that's just me because I, I just like the, I mean, I just like the phrase Mr. Speed, you know what I mean? And it's definitely sort of gives me more of a character of who is singing the song than Love Him or Leave Him. Mike, um, it's it's a strong enough track. I mean, it, it, it's a catchy song, um, but I just I just know that from the perspective of trying to, to play these songs live, not to go back to that all the time. It's it's not an easy song to present live. So, it, which makes me wonder how difficult it was. You know, if you're gonna if the song is gonna be hard to play live, period. How do you write that song? Do you just create it in the studio and that's what it becomes and that's it and you abandon it? I mean, debatable. Um, but also too, from you know my perspective, I think you know this is basically you know the history band that I helped you know form. Um, we took our, our you know this song's name you know as our namesake. So, sure. um, but at the same time too, like it's a little misunderstanding and or, you know misleading away because as a kid you think, well, wait a minute, if you're if you're Mr. Steve, then if you're gonna be with a girl, maybe maybe you don't want to be so fast, you know, like maybe that's not the, the best way to be. But you know, I, I get maybe he's trying to say that hey, you know, I'm. I'm good at this and this is what I do and you know, so be it, you know. Right. Right. I, I'm I, in and I'm out and it's over. Yeah. 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 I, That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean emotionally, not physically, I think is what he's trying to say even. Yeah. Yeah. He gets them into bed quickly. He doesn't finish too quick. That's the yeah. Um Yeah. Good Lord, we hope not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where would we be if Paul was letting us down like that? Uh, yeah, please. Um, musically, it's definitely got kind of a stonesy kind of honky tonk, almost country influence in that riff, right? Definitely. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, because that's a that's basically they're almost like doing a reverse version of uh, Stone's uh, Tumbling Dice intro. It's the same type of lick, same type of chord structure. Okay. Spot on. Mm-hmm. See you in your dreams. One of the few co- songs that Kiss ever did that they recorded twice. Uh, didn't it go on Gene's solo album? Does yes. it officially count as twice for Kiss? Okay. Um, I actually like it, but that's because I, the, the more I listen to these Kiss albums, the more I find that I'm more of a Destroyer Kiss fan than I am a Rock and Roll Over Kiss fan, even though I like Rock and Roll Over and I like Destroyer. And See You in Your Dreams has a little more of a, almost like concept to it or a, you know, sort of a mysterious edge to it. It's not so blatantly, um, you know, cock rocky you know what i'm saying not but, wham bam thank you ma'am yeah yeah exactly and i i tend to like the more sort of um concepty kiss songs you know so it's a little more to me it's a little smarter a little cleverer than uh the rest of the stuff on the album although i do understand i guess i i heard that gene didn't like the recording and recorded it again so i looked up the one on his solo album and it is definitely better on a solo album it's you know um better more uh better done Mike? I would definitely I would bolster John's comments about that because in a way it, this is like a return to like when they're doing like you know heavy metal Beatles you know it's like it's it's musically more like a, a Beatles type you know chord structure that they're doing uh, and lyrically it's a little more you know, if you want to call it heartfelt um, in a lyrical kind of way um, I do wonder too I mean again it, when it comes to you know the structure of the song is slightly different on, on the Gene Simmons solo album, where it's, I think he added like another part to the second verse, another lyric. Yeah, instead of a half it, verse, it's a full verse. Yeah. Um, but again, too, when it comes to guitar solos, it's a killer, killer Ace Frehley solo. Um, and to the point, he's doing that like Steve Hall, you know, beautiful, but tapping that in with a bunch of, you know, uh, pentatonic licks as well. And I think on the Gene Simmons solo version, I think it's Michael DeBar doing... Some background vocals. I could be wrong, but either way, um, you know, again, it is it is definitely nice to have this track on the record because it's different than what preceded it. For sure, they never actually tried to play this live, though, which is surprising. No, yeah, it seems like it needs a bunch of reverb and all sorts of crazy effects in it, and they didn't do it. You know what I mean? That's how I buy it. Yeah, I'll buy that. Um, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So Paul Stanley's wrote the next song, although Peter Chris sings it. Uh, originally, he supposedly wrote it for Rod Stewart, and it's definitely uh, written in that style. Uh, Hard Luck Woman. Um, I, okay, so Hard Luck Woman is when Kiss does uh, Kiss Unplugged, okay? And I turn it on, and I think this is what they open with. I think on Kiss Unplugged when they're on MTV. Can you uh, confirm they, or deny they, that? They open with Coming Home. Okay, then never mind. Well, somewhere in there, they play this, and I think to myself, this ain't Kiss. I don't like this song. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 rem- I knew that it was a Kiss song, but I remember thinking, like, why are they doing this song? There's so much more that they could actually do. And I understand that it charted. You know what I mean? It's one of their biggest hits. But I've never really been that big a fan of this song. Um I think who didn't someone some country star covered it right Garth, Garth Brooks, Brooks or yeah. yeah Garth and again I'm like what well, you know okay you're gonna play homage to Kiss and do this why not do you know a hundred thousand years or something weird outside of your zone Garth Brooks you know what I mean instead of that so this song 
even though I know that this is a lot of people's favorite Kiss song, this song does nothing but disappoint me every time I hear it. And I think with the the Garth Brooks thing is uh, he recorded um, he did vocals on the Kiss My Ass version of this song. So when Kiss did you know basically a tribute to themselves, uh, he was on that track. Right. And okay. All right. He, he was he was clearly you know it's funny because there was a great documentary on him that was released about a year ago. Um, he didn't really mention the fact that, and I know this for for a fact from a friend that he's a huge huge Kiss fan, but it was never mentioned at all in the documentary and I've seen Garth live and he does a lot of crazy stuff like pyro and flipping around and stuff. So he's, you know, I, I understand, but like, can you give him some credit? But anyhow, it was like a shoe in for him to just, you know, okay, who are we going to have to sing this song? Well, let's go with Garth Brooks. Boom. He's in, you know, I guess it makes sense. Um, but I, I think too, you know, when you think of you know, at the time when we were all growing up with kiss, um, you know, I mean, I was, I wasn't even aware of the band at this point. So I would have been maybe six or seven years old, but to me, it, it's one of those songs that you can't really appreciate until you become more mature as an adult and can you appreciate maybe the lyric content and where it's going. Not, not to mention like the, the fact it's such a soft musical track for like, you know, a live loud electrical band. Um, I didn't appreciate that until later. Um, but at the same time too, um, it's the, the, the chord structures, really amazing and, and it's 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 really kind of like a one it's, it's a joy to play on an acoustic guitar and like no wonder paul said you know i gotta do something with this riff and i'm gonna write a song and this is the way it's gonna be but at the same time too i agree with john like you know doing you know there's always you know these artists that say like you know i you know i know bruce springsteen and i you know i i could be the next the, the next bruce springsteen well we already have a bruce springsteen so in a way in the 70s we clearly had plenty of rod stewart records records where we've got a rod stewart why do we need another rod stewart then again you know it worked you know it, it's it's a, it's a good song yeah but it just never know. is in the right place yeah but at the same time too they i think they played it for about a week or so in the rock and roller tour and, and that's as far as that went it's a good song but it, it in a way it definitely doesn't sound like kiss i think lyrically it's interesting there's a, a bittersweet kind of tender quality to it where this guy is breaking up with this girl because he realizes that he's not the one for her and she's unhappy, but he doesn't have the power to make her happy. And she will probably continue to be unhappy until she finds the guy that's right for her. And that's, you know, a fairly sophisticated, mature lyrical concept. Um, there, there's, there's a lyric that hangs me up on it though. Um, the, Rags, I guess is her nickname, right? Rags, a, sail, mm -hmm. yeah. a sailor's only daughter, a child of the water, too proud to be a queen. And the line that hangs me up is that last line, too proud to be a queen, because are queens known for having a dearth of pride, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, or, you know, like ex excessive pride precludes one from being a, a queen. I mean, queens are known for being prideful, right? So I, I almost wonder if that line wasn't something else and they just kept it that way because they couldn't think of something better. Or they didn't, you know, like it doesn't completely make sense. I, it almost seems like it would be a better line if it was like one day you'll, you'll be a queen when you find the man that you're looking for. Who's not me is kind of what they wanted to say. I agree with you, Dave, but also I think that, you know, to me, this seems like probably one of the, it's one of those things where it's such a, maybe like a personal reference or a personal lyric that we'll never know the true meaning of what he's trying to say. Yeah, you know, I'll, this might've been that. based on a specific relationship and, you know, maybe it's, a, it could be like a backwards compliment in a way. I don't, I don't know, but it's definitely like, it's a heavy lyric in a way for, you know, what really is, you know, a hard rock band, you know, and hats off to them for, you know, 
uh, putting that lyric on on, on vinyl. Yeah. But I, you know, yeah, no, I, I I know what you're saying, and that's that's a good point. Um, you know, maybe it could be maybe the sentiment is you ought to be a queen, you know, and I'm just yeah. not the guy that that's going to be the the king that can put you on that pedestal because I'm not right for you, but. Um, but interesting too, where they, you know, they, you know, there's always there's, there's sort of like an uh, overriding or overarching theme with some of Paul's songs, where it's like, you know, hey, you know, I, I can't be all you want me to be, and you're a hard luck woman, and that's just the way it's going to be, you know. It's just, you know, it, again, the immediacy of the fact that they were on the road. I think they released what uh, Destroyer in March of '76. This is recorded and released um, in November of '76. I mean, they were busy guys. You know? They didn't have a lot of time to be, be in a relationship. So if that's you know what results in terms of a lyric or a song, then you know, hey, they made the best of it. That's yeah. that's a good point. In fact, it's you know it, lyrically, it's probably related to a song like "Ain't Quite Right" from Paul's solo album too, or even "Reason to Live" from Crazy Nights. You know, you know. Yeah. Okay. Final track. This is kind of Paul's uh, tribute and in, in influence uh, from Led Zeppelin, I think. Um, you know, recently he's been interviewed about, about this song, and he, he says, you know, if I had been a better singer at the time this was recorded and I had a better range, it would have sounded more like Robert Plant than it does. But uh, what do you have to say about making love? I like it a lot. It's quick, direct, and... You know, does what it's it does what it says on the tin. You know what I mean? It is cock rock. It is whatever, but it's one of the more catchier. It's nice and quick. You know what I mean? In terms of like the tempos, you know, gets your blood pumping. I I actually like the song quite a bit. Although I know that goes against all my other things, where I'm like, I don't like these cock rock songs. But for some reason, just the way that it's done, <laughs> it's you know what I mean. It's it um, holds up better for me. Well, you know, they say that anybody can write a great song about one subject once, but it takes a, right. a great artist to write a hundred great songs about the same subject. Mm. Okay. All right. Excellent yeah. point. Yeah. So what were you going to say, Mike? I was just going to say, I think from a songwriting standpoint, um, that, that is a killer riff. I can only imagine what it would be like to play that riff in, in, in a, you know, a, in a sound check in an open arena. I mean, it just might, might be bouncing off the walls. I mean, if you want to have some joy, like, you know, get yourself a, you know, Ibanez PS10 and plug it into a Marshall in a rehearsal room and play that riff, you're going you're gonna to get some Yeah, chills. yeah, the riff is super, yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. But at the same time, too, much like um, other bands that came later, like Def Leppard, they'll use things like minor chords and pre-choruses and create that tension, that drama, that will lead you and launch you into the chorus, which is basically like a backwards version of the, you know, the intro riff, which is, you know, E-D-A, whatever it is. You know, so again, like... It's it's not the most complex song, but it has some depth. Um, but it's it, it, it re retains the power and retains the drama, and I think that harkens back to um, Paul's influence too from uh, listening to a lot of classical music. Mm. Um, and he knows how to arrange a song in a way that you know, even if it's going to be cock rock, I'm going to present it in a way that it becomes a little more dignified and, and classically arranged, and, and and so be it. And again, too. Uh, with Ace, a killer, killer solo. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And there's like the harmonized yeah. part at the end where he's like, whoa, where, you know, I mean, again, it's just so clear and direct. Um, but then, too, uh, with the song, um, granted, the rest of the record is in a, a half step down from 440. This one is, a, is, is, is essentially in 440. But when they played it live, they would do it um, in 440 half step down, but with like a capo. Okay. So a Ace 
And Gene would basically play the song in, you know, like the first fret, if you want to call it that, uh, whereas Paul would play with a capo. So I, I just wonder, I don't know, you know, you wonder what they did in the studio. Did they do like, did Paul play with a capo in the studio, and did they play in it's? But if you listen, to the, the, the reason I bring that up is there's a great counterpoint to the riffs where, you know, Gene is playing like octaves on the bass part, but he's not really playing the riff, you know. So again, it just creates like a great dynamic for like a simple riff, we're not, you know, if everybody's playing the same thing, it becomes dull and, and mundane. Whereas the dynamic is there because they're they're playing the same thing, but like in, in in different sort of tunings in a way. Yeah, there's definitely some interesting stuff going on with the arrangement, um, with the drums too. The way that the yeah. drums at the end change up, the way that they're playing to that riff. Yeah. Um, you know, that's I, they do that on the studio version, right? I know they do it on the live version. Yeah, because Peter's basically doing almost like a backbeat thing on the snare and the floor tom, which, you know, again, it, we I don't think we, any of us have mentioned this yet. Much credit to, to Peter for his drumming style. Like, I would love to get into a room with a guy that has no idea what Kiss Music is about and play some of the songs from this record and just play the wrist to the guy and see what they do. Because I, I don't think Peter is – what I think is Peter's really unique as a drummer, and I think his approach to these songs was always creative um, and unique. But I just – you know, I don't – I don't know if you put like these songs in front of another drummer, it'd be interesting to know what their perspective would be because I think it would always come out completely different from what, what Peter did and, and what Kiss produced with his records because those riffs are great, but you've got to play in a certain a certain style and a certain vibe and you know Peter established that from the get go and the fact that they did that in that short of amount of time, <laughs> there I think they put out like you know three these three records between uh, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun in a matter of maybe like twelve months. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know? that's crazy to me. I don't know how you could write. I mean, these songs are consistently good. But you know what I mean? I don't understand how you can write, I mean, essentially 30, what is it, 30 songs in in a, in a year that are all pretty darn decent. Yeah, yeah and they, they, they clearly had other tracks that they didn't use. So, you know, we know from right. the Jason involved situation. So, yeah. Right. Right. So one, yeah, but, one last word about the arrangement. This is one of the only rockers on this album that features that tasty acoustic guitar happening in the verses, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, yeah, the pre-courses, too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So let's let's sum up any final overall thoughts about Rock and Roll Over. Uh, I liked it. <laughs> no, I, I like it a lot. I actually like Dor- uh, what's the guy's name? Dorit's cover for it. I keep looking at it over and over again and, and find it pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, uh, and then I even researched it. Apparently he did Sonic Boom and it's sort of done almost as a tribute to that album. Yeah. So, uh, I definitely, that's actually one of my favorite parts of the whole thing is the, um, the album cover. And on the album cover, or is everybody aware of the fact that there is the, uh, I think it's the Columbia or RCA uh, record uh, club version of the record with the teardrop of, uh, underneath Paul's eye? Yes, and that was supposedly a misprint, okay. right? Well, I, 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 I tend to question whether or not it's, it's a misprint, because if you look at the, the back of the record, um, I don't know if you can see this, there's a different stamp on the back of the record that shows it was like a record club pressing, so I think it might have been more intentional than a mistake. Now, is is the uh, eye on both sides of it? Is the teardrop on both a, sides? Yeah, it is not. You got a picture oh, okay. of this? Okay. There's the there's the back. You know, granted, nobody that's going to be hearing this uh, see this. But point being, too, when you look at the inside uh, label, there's also a record club stamp as well. And let me see if you can see that. Okay. Hmm. So I, I think it's pretty exclusive to this this pressing. Yeah. 
Interesting. Now, Interesting. But then the other point that I have about this record period is, um, again, when, when Dave, you and I met Eddie Kramer, I think it was at the 2003 uh, NAMM show, we had approached Eddie and asked him about the track Queen for a Day. Yes. Which was supposedly a track that was written by Gene, and the attention was Ace is going to sing it, or you know, did Ace write it? I mean, nobody's really confirmed that. But I th- you correct me if I'm wrong. I think Eddie that day said, uh, I'm not aware of that track. Yeah, I asked Paul Stanley about that on the Lick It Up tour, too, and he said he didn't remember that one. Um, but, yeah, I, I've heard the same thing. The story is when they were going to uh, mix uh, tracks for Double Platinum and they were bringing all the masters in from you know the old records to release that, the Queen for a Day was supposedly seen or viewed as a track that was on one of the reels. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, because there's also a story, too, with, you know, not to go on a tangent, but um, there's a single release, I think, I forget what the record was, but there was, um, oh, it was Strutter 78. Yeah. And, you know, whether or not you believe it, um, supposedly, you know, the B side to Strutter 78 was a, a remix of Shock Me that was intended for a double platinum as well. But you know, that all harkens back to the point that apparently there is a reel that has this song on it, and for whatever reason, nobody's owning up to it. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, the yeah. lost song from that, from that uh, era. Um, you know, yeah. this album always sticks in my mind because uh, I have a very vivid memory of being in the National Record Mart and seeing it on the wall before I even knew who Kiss was. And I said to my dad, what's this? Uh, and he said, oh, that's rock and roll. You wouldn't like that. And uh, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in between when that had just come out, uh, and when Star Wars came out, which is, you know, 76, I had discovered Kiss by then. And because I remember my brother telling me, I saw this great movie called Star Wars. You're going to like it. You're going to like it as much as you like Kiss. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're all, we've all, yeah. Look at what happened to us now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're still here. Talk right. About it. The, right. Yeah, exactly. To talk about it. The kiss, the kiss Star Wars generation. Yeah, that's right. So, all right. Well, thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, you know, uh, Paul Stanley was kind of disappointed in some ways with this album because he felt like, uh, it didn't sound as good as some of the stuff that Eddie Kramer had done with Led Zeppelin. He wanted a little bit more of the Bob Ezrin polish on it. Mm. And so for the sister album, when it came time to do Love Gun, uh, a mere six or so months later, they decided to take Eddie Kramer into the studio where he could do a few more studio tricks and you could have the best mm. of both worlds, which we'll talk about next week, Love Gun. So good to be on the Planet Kiss with all of you guys. Right. Yeah. It's it's nice to be here. As Gene Simmons <laughs> would say, no place I'd rather be. Yeah, right. Exactly. Guys. Great a- to hear from you. Hope you're all healthy and well. And uh, Right back at you, man. All right. Take care. Bye.